Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this joint AEI Combating Terrorism Center event. My name is Katherine Zimmerman, Zimmerman, and I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, and my colleague Jason Warner here is at the Combating Terrorism Center. Uh, we are discussing today the counterterrorism lessons that we have learned over the past 20 years as we look forward at today's and tomorrow's threats and the next frontier for counterterrorism. Uh, which, as we have, have come to learn from various analysts and others focused on it, is going to be in Africa and not the Middle East, where the U.S. has been focused uh, for decades now. I'll turn it over to Jason and then take you back. All right. Uh, to echo Katie's sentiments, uh, I'm Jason Warner. I am an assistant professor uh, at the Combating Terrorism Center. And so uh, we're uh, very pleased to join AEI for uh, this retrospective uh, on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Um, we're uh, hopeful for great audience engagement uh, and, and thankful for your participation. So with that, I will turn it back over to Katie. Thank you, Jason. For the run of show today, uh, I'm going to start with moderated discussion with our panelists, whom I, I'll introduce shortly. And we are taking questions from the audience for the end of the discussion. Uh, and with that, let me start by introducing our panelists. We have with us Chris Harnish, who is the former Deputy Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department. Uh, he was there under the Trump administration and in another, another life was a researcher at AEI and was the reason actually that I have come to the American Enterprise Institute more than a decade ago. Next, we have Luke Hartig, who is now a fellow at New America. He's an executive editor at Just Security and president of the National Journal Research. He previously spent several years in the U.S. government serving in the Pentagon and, as, and then as a senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council under the Obama administration. Daniel Milton, who is the director of research in the Combating Terrorism Center, and he's an associate professor in the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And finally, Jason Warner, whom you just heard from, who's an associate in the Combating Terrorism Center and an assistant professor in the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy. Please join me in welcoming our panelists and what will prove to be a phenomenal discussion. I've asked them each to keep their answers a little bit shorter so we have more time for Q&A, um, but I would like to start here with, with Luke uh, and looking back at the Obama administration's approach to the war on terror. So you joined the administration in 2010, working on counterterrorism policies and eventually serving as a senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council. It's very clear that President Obama, like his successors, uh, sought to end what we call the endless wars. But the steps he took uh, also show an understanding that the U.S. could not disengage from counterterrorism activities. Uh, the U.S. pursued, as you've put it, an aggressive network-based approach to target terrorists. Can you first put that in layman's terms uh, and then speak both to its successes and perhaps some of its shortcomings? Yeah, for sure. And thank you so much for having me. And thanks everybody for joining, um, especially on the eve of such a solemn day. Uh, it's such an important time to have this conversation about the future of counterterrorism. Um, I think what's important to start with there, Katie, is that, you know, President Obama didn't come in immediately wanting to end, end all the wars, right? I mean, he wanted to focus on, on fighting the good war. Um, the right war after uh, after Iraq and the Bush administration. Um, and he came in at a time when Al-Qaeda was seemingly resurgent. That was affirmed quite a bit in uh, December of 2009 during his first year in office uh, with AQAP's failed aviation plot um, over Detroit. Uh, Bin Laden was still alive. Afghanistan seemed to be trending very badly. Um, and at the same time, he was inheriting President Bush's legacy, particularly things like Guantanamo Bay, the legacy of torture, um, this kind of sprawling global global war on terror. Uh, and, and so there was sort of this desire to, one, focus on the right war, and then two, make sure that it was on a sound legal, ethical, moral footing. Um, and I think you saw a lot of that during the first uh, few years of the administration. 
But certainly by the time you get to 2010, 2011, um, it looks like, you know, a whole lot of stuff going on in a whole lot of places um, and, and a real desire to try to, to try to draw that down um, out of a sense of not wanting to leave another uh, huge war to his successor. And, and who knows who that could have been, right? In 2012, Mitt Romney very well could have won the presidency. So, um, so I think in, in that context, uh, there is a certain allure to um, the idea of using drone strikes and special operations raids to pursue a, an aggressive network strategy, as, as you mentioned, that I've, I've termed it before. And, and what that really means is rather than trying to completely destroy an entire terrorist organization or uh, engage in extensive nation building, um, you could instead focus on the top leadership, the external attacks, uh, external attack and operations planners, um, and those types of elements of the terrorist network that are really the most potent and concerning to the American people. And certainly that, that approach worked in a lot of ways. Um, we decimated Al Qaeda core, uh, killing bin Laden, made significant gains against AQAP, um, and, and, and there was a lot to that. I think there was a lot of concern, and certainly by the time I got to the White House in 2013, there was uh, a heavy focus on this is not a sustainable approach that we can take forever. Um, we cannot remain in perpetual war. We cannot remain uh, continuously conducting drone strikes um, you know, into the foreseeable future. Um, and we're not even sure that these are producing sustainable gains for us. So, so the things that we really focused on heavily during my three years in the White House were things like constraining um, the drone program, putting strong sets of rules and limitations around it, most famously in President Obama's presidential policy guidance uh, on, on the use of lethal force. Um, doing things like increasing our support to partnerships, increasing our support to countering violent extremism, uh, making real efforts to try to uh, draw down the population at Guantanamo, which we took from 220 down, down to 40. Uh, so it, it was meant to create a structure that was less militarized, had more constraints around the use of force, but still recognize that there were terrorist threats out there that we needed to address. Um, I think in one level, uh, you know, and President Obama was sort of was quoted and, and I think panned in many circles for his comment around, you know, more Americans are killed every year from drowning in a bathtub than they are from terrorism. And I, and I think that quote, which was uh, said in private, um, but, uh, but made it out into the news, uh, was, uh, I think, misinterpreted in a lot of ways. And I think what he meant was, you know, we have to put terrorism in proper context. Um, we have to think about it alongside a whole range of challenges. Uh, and I think here where we're looking at 20 years on, um, it's never been more important than ever to put it in context along the whole uh, range of challenges. Thanks, Luke. And, you know, I, I completely agree with you as an analyst who was working on Al-Qaeda in 2010, 12 uh, and onward. The kind of idea that drone strikes were ever going to solve this problem uh, was farcical. Um, and I just used to joke that I was rewriting the same op-ed saying that, yes, we, we killed another insert terrorist name, uh, but it's not enough. Um, and so I think that some of those challenges that the Obama administration faced, we have continued to wrestle with uh, in our counterterrorism uh, strategy and approach, uh, as well as this question of sustainability, which uh, began during the Obama administration, was really picked up uh, during the Trump administration and has continued, I would say, through the Biden administration, some of the shifts that we're seeing in our counterterrorism posture and our military posture, um, and that the uh, idea of competition instead of counterterrorism. Um, but turning to, to Chris, uh, you were there in the Trump administration initially as a director for transnational threats and for Afghanistan at the National Security Council before uh, serving as the deputy coordinator for counterterrorism at the State Department. And you know something that I found is we actually tend to overlook the role of the State Department uh, when we're talking about our counterterrorism policy and approaches um, because we have such a kinetic focus uh, on what what the Defense Department and other agencies are doing uh, in terms of, of targeting the terrorist networks. And also because diplomacy really never grabs headlines uh, unless it's drastically failed. Uh, so. You know, what has the U.S. been able to do with its partners and what key obstacles remain? Sure. And I'll, I'll tackle that in just a second. But let me first start by saying, Katie, thank you very much for having me back to AEI. Uh, as you mentioned, I got I got a part of my CT start at AEI. So it's great after 11 years to finally be back. So so thank you very much, uh, Katie. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here alongside such a distinguished group of panelists. Now to I think what's a very good question about the State Department's uh, underappreciated role in the, in the fight against terrorism. 
Um, I, I know talking about uh, rules and authority of, of executive uh, departments and agencies can put an audience to sleep. So I'm, I'm not going to get into too much detail as to all what those roles and authorities are. Uh, but needless to say, that State Department plays a key role in the fight against terrorism. Now, you're absolutely right that state's not at the tip of the spear in the CT fight. State's not collecting intelligence. They're not doing the finding and, and, and fixing of terrorists. And they're certainly not doing the finishing of, of terrorists. Uh, but that said, I think especially as the U.S. Uh, combat footprint overseas starts to uh, starts to diminish as we start to withdraw combat forces around the world uh, that are engaged in the TCT fight, I think that the, the role of the State Department will become ever more prominent and ever more important. Uh, so I, what I'd like to do is just kind of highlight a few a uh, few areas where, where state uh, plays an important role in this, this CT fight. I think most importantly uh, is the fact that we're moving into an era where we're, where we're going to be relying much more on, on our partners overseas to defeat and, and degrade the terrorist threat. So state has obviously a huge role to play in that. Uh, the State Department generally takes the lead uh, from the U.S. side in requesting or advocating for foreign troop deployments for counterterrorism missions, such as in, in places like, like the Sahel or, or Somalia. In a similar vein, and, and Luke was uh, alluding to this a, a bit, um, you know, we, we, we work with our partners overseas to build up their capacity to actually uh, fight terrorism. So we do this through, uh, through foreign assistance, uh, and, and we work with, uh, with, with local partners, generally law enforcement partners overseas in countries that are really at the, at the front end, or, or I should say the, on the front line in the fight against terrorism. So we'll work with them to build up their uh, their law enforcement capabilities, their counterterrorism investigative uh, capabilities will work with these these countries to make sure that they're able to properly incarcerate uh, terrorists. Um, and they will also work on on issues like uh, like uh, countering violent extremism, which is what, uh, what I think Luke was alluding to when he when he talked about um, you know the, the work that we do to, to make sure that people don't go down that path of of terrorism in the first place. Um, and another key point or another key role that the State Department has uh, in the fight against terrorism is to help cut off money flows to terrorists. Uh, and, and that's through the State Department's capability to designate and sanction international terrorist groups, individual terrorists and, and state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, and since uh, since the topic of this conversation today is, is lessons learned, I'll actually just take a second here to say that with regards to cutting off money flows to, to terrorists and state sponsors of terrorism. I hope that state at this point is, is now looking very hard at, at designating Pakistan as a state sponsor of terrorism. Obviously, we haven't been able to do that for the past 20 years um, because of, of the, the war in Afghanistan and the fact that we needed we needed uh, Pakistan's support to, to, uh, to execute that war. Uh, but I think it's, it's safe to say here in this conversation, as we look back at the past 20 years, that Pakistan's been one of the the, the leading state sponsors of terrorism, uh, perhaps only behind Iran. And, and certainly we're going to have to rely on Pakistan for over-the-horizon uh, capabilities uh, unless, uh, unless there's, there, there's another mechanism to conduct those over-the-horizon over the horizon capabilities that uh, we can do without Pakistan support. But like, I think the bottom line here is, is uh, when we talk about uh, states' roles and authorities and their ability to 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 uh, help cut off the sources of strength to these terrorist groups. I think we need to look very hard. State needs to look very hard at at, uh, at at finally designating Pakistan as a as a state sponsor of terrorism. And then one final very important role uh, for the State Department to play is is promoting a rights respecting approach to counterterrorism that encourages freedom of religion, uh, encourages freedom of of speech and freedom of assembly. Um, it doesn't abjure uh, censorship. It values the role of, of women in the fight against terrorism. And to, I think to the Western audiences, all this makes a lot of sense. And, and, and probably the folks on the, on the call right now are probably nodding their head and saying, yeah, of, of course, that's the, that's the approach that we're taking. But, um, but the reality is, is that our diplomats that are, that are engaged in, this, this, uh, the, in the CT fight, they're working day in and day out to push back on an ever-encroaching uh, what I call uh, Eastern approach to to counterterrorism, and that's it's and that's a, a, an approach that's being pushed to pushed by China, Russia, and, and other totalitarian states uh, that favor uh, mass surveillance, mass censorship, 
uh, places like China, mass incarceration of religious minorities, the labeling of political opponents as terrorists. This is something that we constantly were wrestling with in, at state. And I know my, co my former colleagues at state continue to wrestle with when you have allies, uh, you know, all really all over the world, but especially in places like the Middle East, um, parts of, of, of East Asia that, that use the term as the, the term counterterrorism to, to go after uh, political opponents or, or political dissidents. And um, sadly, this repressive approach to counterterrorism is, is becoming very, very appealing to many states. So our diplomats, like I said, are constantly on, on the front lines fighting this ideological battle in bilateral engagements, multilateral forums like the, like the UN and, and through the allocation of foreign assistance. So I think that that's a, a really important role that, that states uh, playing right now. Look, I, I know there's, uh, there, there's a lot more that states doing. I didn't give it to give justice to everything that our colleagues and my former colleagues at, at Foggy Bottom and at embassies around the world are, are doing right now to, to fight terrorism. Uh, but I, I do on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, just want to tip my hat to them and and thank them, thank former the former colleagues at the State Department that uh, everything that they continue to do in this fight, as well as uh, tipping my hat to all in the intelligence community and, and in, the, in the Department of Defense and throughout our government that are continuing this important fight to keep us safe. Thanks, Chris. I, I think I speak for all when I echo those sentiments in terms of um, being thankful for, for those who are serving the U.S. and our national security interests, uh, both in and outside of government, um, you know, there, there is certainly a, a cadre of individuals who have sacrificed a lot uh, to help this cause. Um, and your point about uh, partners is, is well taken, especially as we're continuing to shift our counterterrorism posture toward reliance on partners to execute, uh, which, which Luke and, and now you have referenced. Um, and, you know, to that, I, I think that we then turn to, to Dan and, you know, he's serving now as the research director for the Combating Terrorism Center, uh, which is a center that was stood up at West Point in the years following 9-11 to pull together the great research that was within the, within the academy, but was not actually centralized in one location. Um, and his research focuses primarily on Iraq and Syria, um, which, of course, you know, brings us to that, that big question from uh, 2014, which is, you know, how did we miss the rise of the Islamic State? Uh, that seems like such a major counterterrorism failure in our analysis. Uh, and it, it wasn't just uh, within the U.S. government uh, that we missed the conditions. There were a couple of warnings from the Institute of the Study of War and other think tanks around town. But generally, the overriding sense after uh, 2011 and the death of Osama bin Laden was that this, this terrorism thing was on its way out. And so what did we miss and what should we be changing to prevent such surprises in the future? Katie, that's uh, an excellent question. And uh, before I get to that, I just want to thank uh, you for, for putting this panel together and uh, all the folks who are in the background making it work. And of course, our audience for, for joining us and, and being a part of this. Uh, and also want to echo uh, my support and, and appreciation for Chris's comments there at the end for the, the many unknown folks who uh, have done a lot of hard things uh, to, to bring us uh, to a better point today, I think. But um, you know, I was pondering this question about what was missed and, and, and perhaps what we can do to avoid that. And I, I uh, found myself reflecting on the fact that across uh, the past 20 years, um, and there's many individual instances, but each administration has struggled, I think, to uh, identify correctly uh, how things might develop or how things would develop. Uh, you think about potentially the Bush administration and not fully anticipating what would happen in Iraq. Uh, in Afghanistan from a terrorism perspective, you think about, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the rise of uh, the Islamic State, uh, you think about the role of domestic terrorism and how that has been uh, not as fully anticipated as perhaps it should have been. And it, it leads me to consider the fact that it is a very human tendency and no administration seems to be exempt from it uh, to see the world uh, as they want it to be seen and not necessarily as it is. Uh, and I don't lay any blame at any individual. I think that's just the nature of the beast. And so how do we do better at that? And what have we learned over these past 20 years uh, to do better at that? And I just came up with at least three things. Uh, there's, there's surely more that could be considered along these lines, but I think these three are helpful. I think every administration needs to invest in listening and cultivating outside voices. 
I think that it is so critical as we think about policy, uh, not just to avoid the danger of groupthink, but to really seek to identify uh, experts in various fields, whether they're at think tanks, academic institutions, journalists, whatever the case might be, uh, and make sure that their perspectives are incorporated into that process. Uh, it's far more uh, uh, difficult, I think, to do in practice, and it's easy to say in theory, but that's something that often, as you pointed out, uh, is there were voices who were pointing to the rise of the Islamic State. There were voices who looked at what happened in the wake of the Arab Spring and said, this is going to create some conditions where opportunities might arise for uh, jihadist actors to take advantage of these conditions, uh, which is what happened, of course, in Syria and then uh, to a certain extent in Iraq as well. Um, so I think cultivating those outside voices is really critical. I think the second thing is related, uh, and it's always been a struggle, um, that local uh, cultural knowledge of the places where these events are taking place often uh, is lacking in uh, certain parts of, of of the government process. And I think that it's important to try to develop that both internally, but again, to seek to, to bring it in through external uh, factors. Uh, and kind of the last lesson that um, that I think is, is worth mentioning um, comes from the British military historian, Sir Michael Howard. He is actually uh, one of his most uh, uh, valuable contributions to me was a point that he made, which is that uh, the nation that is most likely to be successful in conflict is often not the nation that prepares or anticipates uh, developments uh, or conditions or what the next conflict will look like the best. Instead, the nation that tends to be most successful is the one that adapts the quickest. And I think that that's something that we have been slowly developing over time throughout different parts of uh, the, the US government. Uh, for instance, uh, the Department of Defense and the US military, um, I think have made several uh, incredible uh, adaptions to be able to better uh, engage in the CT fight. Um, Chris mentioned the development of different processes that allow for the targeting of terrorist finances. Uh, that came in the wake of 9-11. Those things weren't in place, but they were quickly put in place in order to more effectively go uh, after the terrorist threat. And so I think that those are things that that we can do uh, better. Um, and so even though I do believe that that cultivation of outside voices will help us potentially avoid uh, some of the, the misses, uh, like the rise of the Islamic State, I also have to tip my cap to those who, once uh, once the cat was out of the bag, so to speak, uh, we're willing to change course and adapt in order to try to deal with the threat. And uh, through the leadership of a number of individuals, I think we were able to do that more effectively uh, through the development of the coalition to defeat ISIS and other uh, uh, steps that were taken to, to kind of push uh, against that development in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and so I'll leave it there, but those are some of the things that kind of come to mind uh, in answer to that question. I think those are great points, Dan. And, you know, also just to add, you know, in retrospect, when we look back at uh, how the U.S. and the international community has transformed after 9-11 in terms of cooperation and the structures in place to make it harder for terrorist networks to operate, uh, it is really, really astounding. Um, but uh, to the point of adaptability, of course, our, our, uh, our adaptations have somewhat stagnated, uh, even as the terrorist threat is changing. Um, and so, you know, I think that's something to keep in mind as we move forward, that we've managed to address the threat as it was, um, and making sure that we stay on, on top of the threat as it comes uh, is going to be a continuing challenge. And I leave it to Luke and Chris to talk about uh, how that stagnation occurs within bureaucracies of government. Um, far be it for me to speak from experience on that, but I think part of it has to do with just um, kind of getting the momentum to move within the bureaucracy is, is sometimes challenging. Um, but before we get there, um, just turning to Jason, uh, whose work has focused on, on Africa. And, you know, few Americans really think of, of the continent when they think of terrorism. You know, the images 
in the popular mind is of the Middle East, of an Arab, um, but it's the site of al-Qaeda's first major terrorist attacks against the U.S. with the 1998 East Africa embassy bombings. Uh, and as you've recently laid out in a phenomenal piece for the CTC Sentinel, um, the you know, length of, of involvement for Salafi jihadism, uh, al-Qaeda in particular inside of Africa, uh, has, has been there and for African states. Um, the U.S. recognized that with some programming, uh, the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism uh, Partnership, for example, um, to build counterterrorism capacity, but certainly it hasn't been enough. Um, so what do we need to understand about the groups inside of Africa and the networks, uh, and why has the U.S. overlooked them for so long? Yeah, uh, thanks, Katie. Uh, and, and again, great to be here and to have you really spearhead this event. Uh, and, and thanks to the other panelists who are, are um, very insightful. Uh, and so, you know, to, to the point of, of adaptability, I think uh, Daniel hit it on the head and you, you picked up the, the same trend, uh, which is that really um, there, there is a, a, a really seismic shift uh, that I uh, and, and others are, are recognizing and that it is, in fact, uh, that, that Africa is, uh, as some of us have, have called it, uh, becoming uh, the new epicenter uh, for the, the global uh, jihadist movement. Uh, and, and that was really the point of the article that you alluded to. And so um, to the point of thinking about what the future will be, not what the past has been, uh, there are a few sort of points that I would uh, like to, to, to bring about. Um, and, and so I think the, the first would be that uh, for, for those not really paying acute attention, um, the notion that Africa is um, the new epicenter or a new epicenter for the global jihadist movement may come as a surprise. Um, and really, it, you, those folks would be forgiven for not sort of seeing this uh, barreling uh, forward in the way that it has, because it's really been within the past year that um, this sort of slower creep has really manifest uh, as, as sort of acutely um, as we see it uh, occurring now. And it's really been within this past summer that, that this sort of notion of Africa as the really new sort of epicenter for global jihad has come to the fore. Uh, and, and this was marked really, I think, beginning in, in June of this summer, uh, when the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS uh, made Africa its new priority region. It's been trying to bring in new African members into the fold. Um, the next month in July 2021, uh, the African Center for Strategic Studies uh, noted that violence caused by African Islamist groups uh, was uh, over the past year at unprecedented uh, record setting levels of violence. Uh, but at least for me, the sort of um, most uh, ardent uh, or, or most sort of salient claim was when uh, the UN's team for monitoring uh, the global jihadi threat, essentially Al Qaeda, Islamic State and the Taliban, uh, noted what it called a striking development uh, over the, the past period under review, which was that um, in the first six months of 2021, the African continent was the world region most afflicted by uh, jihadi terrorism perpetrated by groups affiliated with uh, al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Uh, and so to, to, the, to the extent that the African continent is to be considered a new, the new epicenter or a new epicenter, uh, for global jihadi terrorism, we're sort of at the beginning stages. There's There's been a, a longer uh, sort of trajectory of its move up the ladder uh, as compared to the Middle East and South Asia. Uh, what exactly this means is, is still up for, um, for interpretation. Um, a second point uh, to your question of what, you know, what, what to know about what's going on on the African continent, and this relates to uh, the, the uh, really unprecedented levels of violence, um, is the sheer number of groups uh, associated with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State that currently exist on the continent. Uh, and, and so, of course, uh, the, the, the two main Al-Qaeda branches on the continent are Al-Shabaab uh, in Somalia and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and, and JNIM uh, in the uh, Sahara and Sahel. But I think what's really contributed, in my mind, to this sort of new prominence of the African continent uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a generator for jihadi violence is the implantation of the Islamic State on the continent. And so today we have six provinces of the Islamic State on the African continent uh, in uh, Libya, uh, Sinai, Algeria, uh, the West Africa province, the Central Africa province, and the Somalia province. But each of those, or I should say two of those, each have two wings each. 
So here we're looking at at least 10 different locations of uh, jihadi violence, uh, of formal jihadi violence on the on the continent, not even taking into account the, the numerous informal supporters that exist uh, throughout the continent as well. And so one of the dangers, I think, uh, that goes underappreciated sometimes is having such a sheer number of formal affiliates of either Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State on the continent um, is that it creates real challenges about what international actors uh, can and should prioritize. So with a finite amount of resources, uh, with so many potential um, destabilizing forces, we're really having to pick and choose the international community uh, broadly, but the United States more uh, specifically. Uh, to Dan's point, I think this was absolutely right. The, the other challenge on the continent with so many groups is that subject matter expertise is really hard to come by. Uh, there is a growing community uh, studying these these various groups. Uh, it's growing, but, but oftentimes uh, the, the knowledge is simply not there. Uh, and I think the third kind of challenge with the sheer number of groups that is, um, that are present on the continent is that they offer each other mutual support in ways that I think are are, are somewhat unique uh, to other world regions. And so particularly in the case of the Islamic State, we've seen um, numerous instances in the open source over the past um, seven years of um, various Islamic State branches providing training for one another, providing fighters for one another, providing uh, money and arms for one another. And so the sheer number of groups on the continent is really sort of providing this lateral support network uh, for for that um, at least Islamic State groups to, to uh, endure. Um, and so to the point of why they've been forgotten, I think it's pretty clear that Africa has not historically served as a priority region uh, for the United States. But really, uh, I can't underscore enough, this is changing. Um, and this is not simply my opinion, um, though it is my opinion, but it is a, a, a more broadly held um, uh, sort of outlook. Um, and, and at the core of the lack of attention has been that the continent really uh, hasn't been an economic engine. Um, and that despite the existence of violence on the continent over the past decades uh, in, in the post-colonial period, uh, such violence really has never posed a threat to the U.S. homeland. Um, European states, of course, have a different outlook, but um, a combination of the, the new sorts of generation of violence on the continent, I think is really uh, urging a, a reassessment of uh, some of those outlooks. So with that, um, I'll just leave it there. That's a, a very quick sort of assessment of, of sort of what's going on on the continent and, and why this shift in prioritization of the continent, I think, uh, is underway. Thanks, Jason. I also realized that I asked you to cover basically half a continent uh, in a couple of minutes. So thank you for actually giving a phenomenal overview of, of the threat here. Um, just shifting a little bit to a little bit, uh, fa uh, rapid fire question here, right? We've got the Afghanistan withdrawal that has introduced a fundamental uh, shift, tectonic shift in, in the Salafi Jihadi movement itself and in our counterterrorism posture. Um, you know, unfortunately, 20 years after the last major shift, I would say, in our, our counterterrorism posture. So uh, just turning to Chris, I know that you've worked at the State Department on foreign fighter flows. Uh, you were working on it out of Iraq and Syria. Uh, we now have discussions today about uh, what's going to happen about fighters going into Afghanistan and of course the 10,000 odd fighters that are currently in Afghanistan who might go home and try to replicate that success. Um, what are some of the challenges and what should we be thinking about uh, in terms of the threat of foreign fighter flows? Yeah, so so Katie, this is a lot to cover in a, in a rapid fire session. Uh, but I think a couple of the key points here to mention are that, uh, well, let me just level set with everybody. The reason why why foreign terrorist fighters are so are such a threat is is because they're often the most ideologically ideologically committed fighters. Uh, someone that's willing to leave an air conditioned apartment in Brussels or Riyadh to to join a terrorist group in the harsh conditions of Syria or Somalia or, or Afghanistan is, is clearly committed to the cause. Second, uh, these many of these foreign fighters come from Western countries, which means that they have Western passports, which facilitates their travel. Third, they, they bring uh, language capabilities that can assist them with, with media, recruitment and fundraising. And, and then I'd also say that they're, all, they're generally a force multiplier as well. Once they get to a destination, 
they can help others, other foreign fighters get there. But to your question on like what we should be looking for now, um, let me start with Syria. So the good news is that ISIS in Syria has been seriously degraded, as, as everybody knows, and, and we don't have significant numbers of foreign terrorist fighters traveling there these days. The bad news is that you still have roughly a couple thousand foreign terrorist fighters hold up in makeshift prisons in northeast Syria that most countries in the world are unwilling to repatriate and prosecute. If one needs to understand why this is so dangerous, look no further than Afghanistan, where in one of the most foolish moves in the course of the 20-year war, the United States twisted the arm of the Afghan government into releasing 5,000 battle-hardened terrorists from prison, where then many promptly returned to the battlefield, some in leadership positions. Uh, and I can promise you that most of the ISIS terrorists that are locked up in Kurdish prisons in Syria right now will not die in those prisons. And I can also promise you that they're probably not doing art classes or vocational training in those prisons. They're they're radicalizing, they're further, uh, further planning operations. And when they do re- get released or do escape, whether in a political settlement or, 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 uh, or through, a, through an escape on their own, we know they're, they're, that these prisoners are trying to escape from these prisons in Northeast Syria right now. They'll return to the battlefield, just like the, the Taliban prisoners returned to the battlefield once they were released recently, um, which actually leads me into my next point, which is regarding uh, Af- Afghanistan. So. Uh, Katie, you, you alluded to this. I, I, I think it, it goes, it's kind of, kind of making the obvious point here right now that, that I think we will start to see Afghanistan become a new destination. I sh- shouldn't say a new destination. FTFs have been going to Afghanistan for, for quite a while these days, including the, the, the FTFs that carried out attacks on, on 9-11. Uh, but I think we'll see Afghanistan as a renewed destination for foreign terrorist fighters. I think the UN's most recent report on Afghanistan in, in mid-2021 estimated that there were something like 8,000 to 10,000 foreign terrorist fighters, mostly from Pakistan and the, the uh, Northern Caucasus region in Central Asia. In Afghanistan, I think that will continue. We'll, we'll continue to see uh, FTS from, the, from those countries uh, go to Afghanistan, but I think we'll also probably start to see uh, a flow of FTFs from uh, other parts of the Middle East, perhaps, uh, perhaps from, from Europe as well. Um, I do think that it's probably a lot more difficult to get to Afghanistan than it was for FTFs to get to, um, to, to get to Syria. I, you know, that's that's because I, I think that uh, the, the you know Afghanistan obviously being a landlocked country and, and the neighbors of Afghanistan are, are not as hospitable uh, to to allowing FTFs to transit through those countries. Iran certainly was uh, pre 9/11, but uh, I don't think Iran's going to be. They're not going to have the open door policy that Turkey had, for instance, uh, when Turkey allowed FTFs to to travel, uh, you know, directly into Syria to fight uh, to fight the Kurds and to fight the Assad regime. I think the the real wild card there is going to be Pakistan, whether or not Pakistan uh, is is preventing these flows of FTFs into uh, into Afghanistan. Um, but one final point I want to make on on FTFs, KD, is is actually not related to the the Islamist conversation that we've been having today. Uh, and I'll make this real brief, but um, it's it's regarding the white supremacist foreign terrorist fighter threat. So from 2014 to 2019, you had thousands of FTFs travel to Russia and Ukraine to support or train with white supremacist neo-Nazi groups in that part of the world. Um, just like the the Islamist foreign terrorist fighters, uh, a lot of these, these individuals that had Western passports, they were gaining, you know, which gives them easy access to travel uh, to the to the West uh, after they receive combat training. Um, now, a lot of the a lot of the uh, a lot of the FTF flows to Russia and Ukraine for for the white, in the white supremacist movement they died down during COVID, obviously because of of the the close of borders closing up. But I do think this is from a CT perspective, this is something that we all should be keeping our eye on going forward, especially, especially as borders start to reopen uh, and, and, you know, in the coming year or so, as they start to reopen, keep your eye out for FTFs uh, returning to, or, or I should say flows of FTFs going to uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, to support uh, white supremacist uh, neo-Nazi terrorist groups. And, and, and uh, you know, like I said, uh, these, these individuals would, would pose a, a very significant risk, uh, given that they do have mostly Western passports. A lot of white supremacist terrorist groups are not actually designated as, as, whites, as, a, as, as a foreign terrorist organizations, so they're harder for the uh, Department of Justice to actually prosecute. Um, 
but a, a lot of parallels here with the Islamist FTF threat that we've seen over the past 20 years. So keep an eye on that. Chris, thank you. And I'll take the opportunity to plug uh, the Combating Terrorism Center's work on uh, some of this uh, white supremacist, uh, right-wing extremist uh, terrorist networks. They've been covering it now for years. And so, you know, look, go back and look at what the CTC Sentinel has published on this because uh, they have been talking about it. And Dan mentioned it earlier, right? It's my own bias to not focus on, on that since it's not where my work focuses. I focus on Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So as we're talking about adaptability and biases, I am also at fault here. Um, the kind of next question that I want to do for, for Dan here is, right, post-Afghanistan, I think it raises a lot of questions about Iraq and Syria and our partners in Iraq and Syria um, who are looking at what happened to uh, the Afghan security forces and wondering what will happen to them again. The Kurds had that nightmare a couple of years ago under the Trump administration. Uh, Dan, what are you seeing inside of that theater? And what would you like to see from the Biden administration as we move uh, increasingly toward uh, this idea of a sustainable counterterrorism approach? Um, so great question. And I'll, uh, I'll do my very best to be uh, moderately rapid, uh, not the not the most, but uh, but also to uh, to say that this is a subject worth a lot of discussion. Um, it is clear by looking at uh, the conversations happening among uh, jihadists in Iraq and Syria that what has happened in Afghanistan is a is a boon to them, um, not necessarily because they share the same uh, ideological vision, but because, as we've seen in times gone by, uh, when there is a significant victory for uh, these groups in one part of the world, uh, it, it, it's kind of like the rising tide that lifts all boats, right? Others uh, benefit from it as well. And I think that that's really concerning. Uh, I think that you look at some of the things that Chris mentioned in terms of prisoners. I think you look at the question of refugee camps, which in Northeast Syria is uh, an incredibly important issue that is not receiving the focus that it needs. Uh, quick shout out to my colleague, Audrey Alexander, who's doing some excellent work here. So watch her for more in that space. Um, but I think that um, this is this is clearly something that has animated a lot of uh, a lot of these actors and, and breathed another sense of, of life into them. Um, I can't specifically say uh, what I would do if I were the Biden administration, but I do think that in general, uh, one of the most uh, important gains that we've made over the past 20 years is the ability to develop effective partnerships. Uh, this hasn't always worked. It hasn't always been flawless, but there have been a lot of gains in this regard. And I think what has happened in Afghanistan uh, is of serious concern uh, to, to any partners uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, and I think that it is well worth our time, effort, and consideration uh, as, uh, as scholars, uh, and certainly I would, I, would, I would suggest as the government, uh, to do the best that we can to understand how those impacts are going to play out over the next several years. Uh, the, uh, the concern that I have is that uh, we, we, um, we are going to see unanticipated effects on our partners in, uh, in the region uh, because of what has happened in Afghanistan if we aren't careful uh, to try to mitigate and to, uh, on some level, conduct some amount of damage control. Uh, because I think that it's uh, it's unfortunately the case that uh, yeah, U.S. credibility uh, is uh, is is uh, not indivisible, and so what happens in one part of the world certainly affects what uh, what happens in the other. And I think that that's worth uh, focusing on for uh, for our future efforts, whether it's uh, the Biden administration or any other. Thanks, Dan. So turning to Luke, who had to manage uh, the global counterterrorism portfolio during his time uh, with the Obama administration and certainly at the NSC was balancing uh, his own priorities with counterterrorism and the rest of the administration's priorities. And just looking ahead, uh, the U.S. is no longer uh, putting counterterrorism on top. And you know, I agree that that's the right approach. And what are you looking for in terms of how we balance our counterterrorism requirements, uh, not just priorities, but the requirement for counterterrorism with everything else that is now on the plate of the United States uh, to pursue? Yeah, I know. Great question. It was such a good time to ask it on the 20th anniversary. Um, 
you, you know, I, I'll go ahead and say, I think the end the forever war frame is the right frame. Um, I think that doesn't mean we don't care about terrorism. It means that we seek to put terrorism in a proper context alongside a range of other uh, threats that we face and we elevate things. Um, and frankly, I think the COVID pandemic has kind of done this and in terms of her discourse in a way that previous administrations have been unable to do, um, recognizing that there are bigger threats out there, pandemic disease, cyber attack, um, you know, the militarization of space, of course, great power competition with China and Russia in particular, uh, climate change. I mean, these are the things that if you look at the, the Biden national security strategy um, are the top priorities and well, they should be. Um, and so the question is, how do we define uh, a new era for thinking about uh, terrorism and counterterrorism that uh, that seeks to not militarize it, that seeks to favor civilian approaches, some of which Chris has talked about, um, and uh, and that seeks to integrate it in kind of a more sustainable approach. And you know, for what it's worth, I think this is not limited. The problem with kind of militarization of of uh, of our counterterrorism fight is not limited to terrorism. Um, I think if you look at uh, the previous several administrations, everybody's gotten tied up in some sort of a regular warfare type thing, right? Whether it was President Obama sending soft advisors to Africa to, to chase Joseph Kony um, uh, as part of the Lord's Resistance Army, or whether it was President Trump kind of ratcheting up the, um, the, the, the engagement and, and fight against uh, Iranian-backed proxies. Um, you know, this is a, a pervasive thing, and I think we need a set of principles to to constrain it. There's a question in the, the chat about is, you know, what is, uh, why, why is this not sustainable? And I think it's, I think the the, the reasons that our, our terrorism fight to date is not sustainable are, are there's some pretty big factors that tell me that that's that that's the, the case. Um, you know, trillions of dollars that have been spent on these wars, thousands of American lives lost, hundreds of thousands of foreign lives lost, um, millions of people displaced by these conflicts. Uh, you know, the, the death toll and the, the swath of instability is, is just immense. Um, and then when you look at all that and say, even in Afghanistan, a place where we, at least for the last 10 plus years, have adequately resourced that effort and for 20 years have been nugging away there, to see that government fall in two weeks just to me says, you know, there's something profoundly wrong with how we've been doing this so far. So, um, so I wrote a piece this week, um, and it's long, but I'll give you just the high points of it, which are uh, five principles that I think could be helpful in actually ending the forever war. Um, and the first one is contract, don't expand. Um, it doesn't say somebody wrote on my Twitter feed that doesn't mean hire more contractors. I mean literally contract and make smaller uh, the conflicts that that we're facing. Um, I think we should be really skeptical of new large deployments of troops. I mean, I've seen we've been uh, uh, deploying advisors to Mozambique and. Uh, and DRC, um, and notwithstanding Jason's excellent rundown of the threats on the African con continent, um, you know, I think we have to be pretty, we have to look very soberly at how much those threats threaten us. And to the extent that they don't threaten us, that doesn't mean we don't do anything about them. It means that we perhaps seek other approaches to, for addressing them through partnerships, through aid, et cetera, um, and not through kind of a militarized um, approach to that. We have these counterterrorism task forces all over the world. We need to take a look at that kind of bureaucratic and operational infrastructure because while it's set up to deal with the threat, it sometimes seems like this, uh, this set of task forces and the such is just is seeking one out. So um, I know the Secretary of Defense is doing a big posture review. This is a great time to do that. The second big principle is emphasize reform and own partnerships. We got it. We have to have partners in this fight. Um, that's the only way that that we're going to be successful in longer term um, in our counterterrorism fight. But you know, between between looking at the cases of Iraq after the 2011 withdrawal, Afghanistan as of recently, Yemen uh, in the run up to the Houthi takeover, I mean, I think we have to be pretty clear eyed about just how many tremendous flaws there are in our partnership efforts um, and how much massive reform is needed on that. Some of it's a technical question of how we're actually doing this on a day-to-day -day training and equip basis. Some of this is how are we mismanaging some of the political dynamics, which I think we saw very acutely in Afghanistan and Yemen um, that ultimately led to the downfall of their security forces. And of course we have to you know, engage with partners who hold our own values and, that, and we hold them accountable. I mean, I think that the stories of, of the abuses that the Emiratis have committed in Yemen uh, in the name of counterterrorism are just unconscionable and we shouldn't have that. Um, the third one is I think we should actually be willing to play a strong defense. It is okay to play defense. It is not the only thing we should be doing, but the, the sense over the last 20 years that if we don't hit them there, they're going to get us here 
I think in a lot of ways totally overlooks the absolutely massive investments we've made at the federal level, in the private sector, at the state and local level, um, in an international cooperation to address uh, to address terrorist threats. And we have a really good set of defenses, and we shouldn't assume that just because we're not pounding every single terrorist threat. Um, that the, the terrorists are, are going to get through. When we do have to engage overseas, there's a range of tools. And I think several folks here, but Chris in particular, has spoken very eloquently about the, the tremendous amount of tools we have besides the military uh, to engage. Um, fourth, run a responsible, inclusive, uh, strategic decision-making process. You know, integrate counterterrorism alongside a range of other um, uh, efforts to to uh, to work on regional policy. It shouldn't just be that counterterrorism is sort of its own thing. It needs to be integrated and run with kind of a broader policy that focuses on stabilization and prosperity in key regions where we see terrorism. And finally, that we should have a. Uh, we should have a set of operations um, uh, that are lawful and transparent. That means we need AUMF reform. We need an AUMF that is more bounded, that is focused on the groups we currently face, that has as um, has sunset clauses and time horizons, um, so that you can't just kind of run on it uh, indefinitely. There's some good movement on AUMF reform in, in the Congress. But I think there's a lot more that still needs to be done um, in order to uh, in order to bring that through and, and ultimately pass a, a newer, uh, much more constrained AUMF and one with that sunset clause and other constraints on the use of force. Um, that means Congress has to be involved in that process and Congress has to also be in very involved in the oversight of operations once we once they've actually passed um, a new AUMF. Um, and finally, you know, transparency. I think the transparency agenda, um, you know, fell off quite a bit in the last administration. Um, I think there's some really good stuff on this. AFRICOM in particular has been pretty good about disclosing um, quite a bit of details about its strikes and engaging with civil society groups and the such. But much more is needed to to explain just exactly what we're doing in the name of counterterrorism uh, and and uh, and what happens when there are less than ideal results, including civilian casualties, and how we're addressing them. So, um, so again, I, I'm not calling for a new isolationism or bringing everybody home right away. Uh, what I'm calling for is um, uh, is is a, a dramatically scaled down and less militarized uh, uh, view of of terror, uh, terrorism and counterterrorism than we've had over the last several years. Thanks, Luke. Some of those thoughts echo sentiments I've expressed in my own writings that we need to be kind of looking beyond counterterrorism to, to manage this threat. Um, and, you know, I focused last year a lot on the Global Fragility Act, which was another way that Congress has sought for us to intervene, particularly in places uh, where there is a lot of fragility in Africa, uh, in a kind of non-counterterrorism framing, uh, which I think the challenge that we have May, or the mistake we've made over the years has been going to our counterterrorism toolkit, which is effective, um, but it's actually not the only toolkit that we have uh, at our disposal to, to manage these threats. Um, I'm going to take one question from, from Q&A. We're running out of time. Um, and then uh, we will be uh, giving the panelists the last word before we wrap up. Um, so from Jeff Selden at VOA, who has been phenomenal at always getting his question in early, um, you know, Jeff asks uh, in some uh, looking at uh, what the U.S. has done in, in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and now uh, in terms of uh, Africa and Northeast Syria in, in uh, at train, advise and assist counterterrorism forces. And um, are we going to be faring any better in the future? Uh, and then how are we seeing the terrorist groups fitting into the global competition? So how are Russia, Ch uh, China, and I would actually add some of the middle powers in there, Turkey and Iran, interacting uh, with some of these threat groups uh, around the world? Uh, so I think Chris can take a stab at that, and then um, we'll, we'll go to last words from the panelists. Thanks, Katie, and thanks for the good question, Jeff. Uh, first, I want to address the what I believe is a false notion that the Afghan army collapsed. Uh, the, the, the point is, is that the Afghan army had the will to fight and they fought very hard and they lost more than 70,000 troops and, and actually achieved great success when they were in the lead. I believe as recently as 2018, the Taliban controlled only 4% of the country. And that was with the Afghan army in the, in the lead from a combat perspective. Uh, the fact is that we taught the Afghan army to fight a certain way and that way relied on intelligence support that we provided and also air support. We pulled both of those. We pulled the contractors that were there to maintain Afghan aircraft that, that the Afghan National Army would call in for close air support. On top of that, many Afghan soldiers were not getting paid. So, of course, they're not going to continue fighting. Most people would continue fighting 
in that situation. I'd say that this was our failure and not the failure of the Afghan National Army. Um, with that said, I do believe if we stand by our partners in the future, then yes, advise and assist, an advise and assist strategy can work and will work. Uh, but we need to train our partners in such a way that, that will be sustainable over time. This doesn't necessarily mean developing foreign partner armies uh, or in some case, uh, uh, you know, non-state actor groups into 22nd century fighting forces. It means teaching them the, the basics of the war fighting functions and the ability to uh, ability for them to fight kind of on their own uh, without without uh, perpetual U.S. support. Uh, it also means helping our partners develop intelligence and, and counterterrorism law enforcement capabilities. But these are all lessons learned. Uh, and, and I think that with these lessons learned, I think that, that yes, absolutely, we can work with and through our partners going forward in the counterterrorism fight. As, as, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I think that we're going to have to work with our work, work with and rely on our, our, our partners uh, overseas to do much more of the heavy lifting on the front lines. Thanks, Chris. Dan, some concluding thoughts? Oh, just want to thank everybody for uh, for letting me be a part of this conversation. I've learned a lot and I certainly appreciate the chance to share just kind of a, a final thought that as we think about uh, counterterrorism from the past 20 years and what it might teach us about the, the next 20, I think one of the things that, that stands out from the conversation and from uh, what we've learned is the importance of, uh, of nuance, uh, nuance in understanding what ends we are trying to achieve. Uh, nuance and understanding where those things might require that we put forward a certain effort that might be a little bit heavier on the kind of civilian uh, and uh, infrastructure development as opposed to a security approach. Uh, I think that overall, that's something that uh, perhaps we haven't done as well uh, in our uh, in our first 20 years post 9-11 and something that I think uh, is worth considering. And, and here at CTC, we're trying to look at some of those issues and to look at them uh, from a regional perspective. Dr. Amira Jadun uh, is doing some excellent work focused on Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, we have Jason, who's doing excellent work in Africa. And then uh, finally, we have Dr. Nikisa Jahanmani, who's looking at uh, kind of the Iranian threat network in the Middle East. And so I think that having uh, work that, that focuses on those areas is going to be a, a good way to establish a positive baseline that hopefully will lead us toward uh, some, some thoughtful decisions for the future. And so uh, those are just kind of some of my uh, concluding thoughts. And, and again, just uh, tremendous appreciation for the opportunity to be here and to you, Katie, for hosting. Thanks, Dan. And, you know, I, I can't recommend the CTC's work enough, um, but also want to point out that uh, Just Security, where, where Luke uh, sits as well, uh, has proffered phenomenal resources in terms of thinking about uh, the counterterrorism and policy frameworks uh, going forward, uh, not just from Luke, but from other authors, too. Um, and then to turn this over to, to Jason as we wrap up, um, on uh, over to you. Sure. Uh no, I I, I, uh, I appreciate the conversation, uh, and and I think that you know sort of from my perspective, one of the things that maybe got a little bit short shrift in our conversation is just sort of the um, encouragement uh, and the and the sort of ideational impact of of what's going on in Afghanistan to movements around the world, uh, and so sort of the the intangibles of what. Um, the the Taliban's sort of new position in Afghanistan means combined with uh, the 2014 to 2017 sort of heyday of the Islamic State. Uh, these are sort of rallying cries that suggest to groups uh, that this is all possible and it's not as far-fetched as, as early al-Qaeda, for instance, would have made it seem. Um, the, the actual widespread takeover of, of territories, if you pick the right location, uh, can in fact happen, which is a is an unfortunate and sobering reality. Uh, but I think that sort of keeping that sort of one-two punch or the relatively recently one-two punch of those phenomena is really going to uh, impact how some of the groups we've been looking at uh, see the world and their interpretations of what is uh, and is not possible. And I think it's, it's sort of opened the aperture for what they might imagine the possible uh, to entail. Uh, so I'll end there uh, and thanks very much, Katie. 
Thank you, Jason, and thank you all to participating in this event. I want to particularly thank our panelists, uh, Luke, Chris, Jason, and Dan, for agreeing to sit here and talk for an hour on something that I know they could each talk about for at least a full day by themselves, um, and you know, just recognize the depth of their experience and expert and expertise on these issues. I also want to take a moment to thank uh, the staff behind the scenes who have made all of this work so well for us. Sean Wheeler, Aaron Doyle, Allison Schwartz, and my intern, Margaret Hayden, um, who have uh, contributed to the success of this event. Um, and with that, I will wrap up and ask all of you to just take a moment in the coming day to reflect on the benefits that we all have having, uh, you know, experienced and, and learned lessons from the 9-11 terror attacks. It transformed US national uh, security and foreign policy. Uh, we continue to learn from the past and hopefully uh, we'll keep building toward a better future. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.